a couple of uh, our couple friends from college, so if that makes sense. So a set of college friends from college days could have been professional models. They really could have. They could have modeled for The Gap. They could have modeled for Banana Republic. Kevin was handsome. Melissa was beautiful. And they were so smart. They were so picking smart. Uh, Kevin, over the years, rose up through the corporate ladder and became an executive. And if I were to name the company, you would all know the company. So uh, he did really well. One of their Christmas cards one year, uh, he took his son on the first nonstop flight of a particular Boeing plane from Seattle to Hong Kong. Who does that? Kevin does, right? And so every year we would get these Christmas cards that would kind of explain their life for the year, this beautiful family. The kids were active in sports. Every year they were going on some kind of mission trip until the year we got a Christmas card that simply said this, Kevin is gone and we are heartbroken. No cancer, no heart attack, no blood clots, no car accident. Kevin had taken his life. And here's the thing. Kevin apparently was severely depressed, but nobody knew. He didn't even tell his wife. Like nobody at church knew. None of us Wheaton friends knew. Nobody knew how bad he struggled. It was was hidden. And you and I see this all the time, don't we, right? You and I have friends who are struggling with something. We've sometimes got extended family members who are struggling with something, and you're kept in the dark until it hits the fan. Um, Drug use, alcoholism, a ruptured marriage, porn addiction, anxiety, depression. There's there's a disconnect between them and the real them on the inside, and then what they project on social media and the conversations that they have with you. And the two things don't line up. This happens with uncanny regularity with mega church pastors, right? Every month there's another mega church pastor in the news who's having an inappropriate relationship with somebody. And sometimes it's not sexual, but sometimes it is, but it's inappropriate. <laughs> and what's going on is these guys in these big places, the weight of having to have all these people cycle in and keep them engaged and keep them excited and pay off this massive debt and hit payroll every week. It is crushing, but they, every Sunday have got to have it all together and have a compelling vision and and cast this thing. And so there's a disconnect between what's going on privately and what they project. And so they turn to somebody to be vulnerable and be real, but they do so in inappropriate ways. The Bible speaks to this reality there's a, th- this uh, disconnect between the self that we project and the real self on the inside. There's an interchange that Jesus had with a, a man who came to him at night, and Jesus says this in John 3, and the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. God is light, but people are trapped in darkness. 
Can we all agree that light and darkness in the Bible, when the Bible talks about those things, it's not talking about electricity. It's not talking about the sun. It's not talking about these LED light bulbs that we have in this sanctuary that's really cool. That light and darkness in the Bible is a metaphor for something else. And again, God speaks through the Bible. It's why we read it. It's why we hear it. It's why we teach it. It's why we study it. And again, Jesus is God so that when Jesus says something, God is saying something. When Jesus does something, God is doing something. And when, God, and when Jesus feels something, he is expressing exactly how God feels about that thing. So today, I want to look at the second I am statement in the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. And again, there are seven statements. We're only going to cover five of them over these many weeks. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate or the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I'm going to ask you to do something I rarely ask you to do, and I'm going to ask you to stand while I read this passage of John. And I'm asking you to stand out of a sign of respect, because if the President of the United States were here, you'd stand up when he or she walked into the room, but also with a sense of expectancy that God will speak, okay? This is John chapter 8, verses 11 through uh, 12 through 20. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. The Pharisees replied, you're making those claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. Jesus told them, these claims are valid, even though I make them about myself, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you, you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards, but I don't judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect because I'm not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I'm one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. Where's your Father, they asked. Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my Father is. If you knew me, you'd know my Father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury, but he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. Thank you. You may be seated. I am the light of the world. This exchange is taking place in the outer court of the temple in Jerusalem during the festival of Sukkah, or the festival feast of the tabernacles. And it was a huge celebration. They would take 16 of these large stands and bowls, that were so tall, they were taller than the height of the walls around the outer court. They would fill these bowls with oil, and get this, they would use the undergarments of all the priests that they had worn that year as wicks, giant wicks, and they would light these, these wicks in these bowls of oil on fire, okay? 16 of them. Now, You and I have no clue what this is because we live in greater Lexington and we have what's called light pollution. But if you go out to nowhere, Nebraska or nowhere, North Dakota, out in the middle of nowhere where there's nothing but wheat or even not wheat, but just nothing, 
you can see the stars like nobody's business. Now we can't see it here because we've got light pollution, but here's, here's a model that somebody built that could give you a sense of how this would light up everything. Can you imagine at the Feast of Tabernacles when they, at night, that first night when they had lit those bowls, the, the temple uh, mount was the highest point in Jerusalem, so it illuminated the entire city. Jesus says, I am the light of the world during the day underneath one of those bowls. The day they're going to light it that night. I am the light of the world. And someone from the crowd basically shouts, liar, <laughs> liar. Can you imagine on a Sunday if Brian Hall or Lefty Caldwell were to stand up, because you know somebody with chutzpah would stand up in the middle of one of my sermons, point their finger at me and say, liar. It would get awkward real quick, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would get really awkward. You would be able to hear a pin drop. You might even hear some, oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> some reactions. Someone from the crowd basically says, liar. Can, uh, what's going on here, okay? Jesus is claiming something that doesn't sit well with this guy and with the Pharisees. Because in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and God said, let there be light. Isaiah 9.2, we typically read this at Christmas time. The people walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the dand of deep darkness, a light will shine. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Why should I be afraid? And then at the very end of the Bible, there will be no more night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. And so when Jesus is making this statement. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be God. And he responds to the guy in the crowd by basically saying, hey, you wouldn't know if I were lying or not because you don't know where I came from. You don't know my father and you don't know me. Can you imagine having Jesus say that to you? <laughs> Scary. Like, I'm sorry, you don't know me. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know anything about me. That's scary. And Jesus is saying this in response to what's spoken to him from the crowd. There's three things that Jesus is claiming in this passage from John chapter 8. He's claiming that, yes, he is God. He's also claiming that he reveals the truth about God to us. In John 10, he talks about that he came to give them life and life abundantly. So he's revealing God to people. And then he reveals the truth about us to us. John chapter 2, verse uh, 20, what is it, 24 and 25. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem, many began to trust him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew them. <laughs> no one needed to tell him what people were like, Right? So Jesus is claiming some powerful things. Now, why is this section of John punctuated 
by the story or the account of a woman caught in adultery. If you have a a modern translation, you probably have this phrase uh, in your Bible. The most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include John 7.53 through 8.11. So is this from John? Is this inserted later? Who put this in there? Well, I want to speak to today why it got placed here. Why did it end up in the middle of this passage, okay? So so I want to read the account. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said, this woman... This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, stoner, what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stopped and stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So this woman is caught in the act of adultery. There's no, you know, we think you've done something you shouldn't do. Like they caught her in the act. In fact, they caught them in the act, but they only drag her out to Jesus. And they only drag her out to Jesus. They don't immediately pelt her with stones. They drag her to Jesus because they want to see if they can get Jesus in trouble. And so they want to trap him. They want to get Jesus. They're using her to get to Jesus. And so Jesus tells them that the one who is without sin can pelt her first. You get the first throw. And the older men leave first. I now understand this. I am only 53, but I'm here to tell you that at age 53, I have a many-page portfolio of failure. Many pages. I shoulda. I didn't. Man, I regret. Why didn't someone explain to me that? <laughs> okay, I have a large portfolio of failure. So I understand why when Jesus said that, the older guys were like, I'm out. <laughs> it's the 21 year olds. The 21 year olds over there at Asbury Theological Seminary. They're experts at everything. How church should work. What God really thinks about this, that, and everything else, and how you should do church, and you're doing it wrong, and they're experts. But even they leave once all the older guys are gone. It takes the the wind, knocks the wind right out of their sails. Where are your accusers? No one's here. Well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Gang, nothing is actually hidden from God. Nothing is hidden from God. 
Again, the truth about us that Jesus reveals to us is that we're sinful and broken. In Psalm 139, the psalmist says this, I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in the darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as the day. Darkness and light are the same to you. A lot of Christians think that they need to keep stuff hidden because if it were to come out, it would, it, it, they might lose their marriage, they might lose their job, they might lose their reputation. And the irony is that by keeping it hidden, they're almost guaranteeing that they will, in fact, lose their marriage, lose their job, lose their reputation. It's one of the great ironies about how hiding and being appropriately vulnerable plays out in our lives. Darkness and light play out in our lives. When you keep it hidden, you lose all of those things anyway. But there's this inner tension we have. I'm not living up to the person I think I ought to be, and so I project this self that's not really the me self out there on social media and conversations and I guard and I hide the real me on the inside and people will think these things well I shouldn't be struggling with porn or I shouldn't have gotten into so much bet uh, debt I'll do better I'll try harder I'll fix it I'll beat it no you won't alone you won't alone if that's you, you're caught in darkness, and darkness leads to destruction. So today, I want to implore you to walk toward the light. Walk toward the light. Again, darkness and light in the Bible, it's a metaphor. It's talking about something, okay? And I've put up a bunch of passages here about light and darkness. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. For with you, it is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light, but whoever lives by truth comes into the light. And then Isaiah, arise, shine, for your light has come. Matthew 4, people living in darkness have seen a great light. In Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. In the Bible, light is speaking to purity and holiness and truth and revelation and understanding and life. Light is God and life. Darkness is sin and rebellion and death and destruction. Can we all agree that light is good and darkness is bad? Can we at least agree to that? Is light good and darkness bad? Yes. yes. Light is good, darkness bad. Okay. So, if that's the case, I have to ask, what areas of your life need light? What areas of your life need light? And is there something that you've been keeping hidden? So, very practically, for some of you, what I want to say is, if you've got secret, unconfessed sin, I want to call you to confession. I want to plead with you to not keep that hidden. Who do you need to talk to this week? What step could you take this week to bring that unconfessed sin into the light? Don't go another week. 
I'll beat this, I got this, I'll fix this, I know I'll do better. Like, don't go another week with that. It'll blow up in your face. So again, you're either in darkness or light. So where are you? Where are you? In Jeremiah 13, it's, the prophet says this, give glory to the Lord your God before it's too late. Acknowledge him before he brings darkness upon you, causing you to stumble and fall in the darkening mountains. For then when you look for light, you'll only find darkness and gloom. So I actually want to talk about physical light as a way to explain this, okay? I'm in the middle of home renovations right now. Jenny and I are not home renovators. We don't do this, but we're doing it this year and we're doing it in spades. <laughs> Our whole home looks like somebody vomited on all the levels. It's just stuff and piles and dust and broken up walls and it's chaos. And you know, for those of you that know me, you know how much I love chaos. <laughs> okay. I've lived in this home since 2007. I know my home. I know my way around in the dark. And so a few weeks ago, barefoot, scruffling along to the kitchen, I crammed my right set of toes into the new lip into the kitchen because he's cut away some floor, but not all the floor. And I could hear the crackle in my, in my toes, Okay. So I say that to say this, in America, are all these people in the darkness who think to themselves, I know my way around, I've got this figured out, this is no problem. And they're kidding themselves, just like I was kidding myself that early morning and I heard the It's bad, really bad, <laughs> okay? If you do not have Jesus Christ, you are in the dark, stumbling around. You may have, you may think you've got it figured out, but you don't. So Jesus, again, says, I am the light of the world. To have Jesus is to have light, and to have light is to have life. Long, long ago, when I was a pastor at Church of the Savior, uh, I worked all the time, and one January... It was late in the day. It was about 5.30, 6 o'clock. The sun had already gone down over the horizon, the dark time of the year. And a young man who lived in the neighborhood decided that he was going to come in to the church because he wanted to talk to a pastor. And so in he comes through the door, and there was a sound and tech volunteer who was there at the time uh, and he happened to be a sheriff's deputy in Jesmond County. And he was stopping by church on his way to go to work. So he had a shift that started at 7 o'clock. He was in uniform, had a sidearm, had his police cruiser in the parking lot. And as the young man walked back to the back of the church where my office was, he pulled, kind of grabbed my arm and he said, Hey, Max, that guy had a strange look on his face. You want me to, you want me to stick around? And I said, No, 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 no. It's fine. I got it. Because... I was young and stupid and because I still have issues of accepting and asking for help and I'm asking for help these days, right? Okay, right? So I get back to my office and I sit in my desk and I can see out my window the sheriff's deputy go over the hill on Brandon Road and disappear. And then I look into this young man's eyes and I say, so 
what brings you here today? Like, why do you want to talk to a pastor? And I kid you not, these are the words that came out of his mouth next. Well, preacher, I have a gun, and I've been thinking all day, I need to use it. I could feel the blood draining out of my head. The room seemed to spin a little bit. (laughs) And I had two simultaneous thoughts. One, crap, I'm dead. And two, I'm going to spend the first several hundred years of the resurrected life listening to Jenny Lynn Vanderpool get on my case for not accepting help and being stupid and working so much. And why did you let this guy in the church building? And why didn't you say yes when the sheriff's deputy said, I think I need to stay. You should have said yes. What are you thinking? And then everyone's going to be enjoying the resurrected life for the first bit, but me. (laughs) But me. So finally, when the room stopped spinning, I, I asked the question I was trained to ask, where is the gun now? <laughs> it's in the glove compartment of my car. <sighs> okay, who have you been thinking of using it on? Well, me. And so then we had a conversation. And it went for about an hour and a half. And I got his story and he got some of my story. And he agreed at the end that I'd walk out into the parking lot with him and that I'd, he'd give me his ammo and that he'd show up the next day at church for midweek, okay? And so he did. He showed up the next day. And then he showed up the next week and the week after that. And then he made a decision to follow Jesus. And then he just kept coming. And I remember many months later him saying to me, you know, if you hadn't been there at that church, I had it all mapped out what I was going to do. And my parents were going to find me and, I, you know, it's going to be glorious, right? And, and he said, but I didn't, right? Because what was hidden came out into the light, okay? So, gang, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's saying something profound. He's saying something profound. He is light He is life itself. Now, here's the thing, what I've discovered, and I would make this caveat. Jesus said the truth sets you free, Josh, and we've talked about this. What Jesus did not say is that the truth sometimes hurts like nobody's business. (laughs) The truth sometimes is painful and it hurts, but it is the right path. It is the path to life. So I want to beg you and implore you today to walk toward the light. Again, where are you? Where are you these days? In darkness or in the light?